As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Christos Nesti, Christ is risen, everyone. Welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botzolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me in the second week after Great and Holy Pascha. So last week, when we talked about the seventh chapter of St. Luke's Gospel account, we saw continuations of the healing narratives that had been playing out all along. But something unique happened, and that was the first identification by a human of Jesus as being more than merely a human. Uh, and that was within the centurion. Because the centurion, when he was calling Jesus to his home, recognized that his authority was something greater than that of a prophet or that of a mere man that there was something divine going on there, and that's why he was so humble, and that's why he wouldn't allow for Jesus to enter into his home. You can hear more of that from last week's session, but it's important, I think, to set the stage here of that revelation because it's going to come up again as we begin chapter 8 and as we continue chapter 8, because in the second half of chapter 8, we see a shift in narrative for St. Luke's Gospel account. And that shift is towards explicitly expressing Jesus' divine authority through his mighty acts. So this is St. Luke really trying to hammer home the fact that this is God who is in front of us. And yet, St. Luke, as he's continued to do time and time again in this Gospel account, has very beautifully shown us as well Jesus's humanity. Because if we remember from our theology, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and there's no separation between the two. And I will continue to point this out as we move along, but St. Luke has done a beautiful job of showing how those two interrelate and connect. As we will see with the calming of the storm that will come up a little bit later, Jesus is asleep in the boat, so that shows that he needs to do the things that human beings do. He sleeps, and yet when he's awoken by his disciples and calms the storm with his word, well, we see there that he has authority over the elements, something that the prophets of old did not have, because this authority 
seems to come from him, revealing him to be fully God, the Son of God. But we'll get into all of that very shortly. So until we get there, we're going to begin the eighth chapter of St. Luke's Gospel account with verse 1. Soon after he went on through the cities and villages, preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we see soon after, that is the events of last week, the last time we talked about Jesus performing a miracle, it was forgiving the sins of the woman who was anointing his feet with oil and her tears. So this is soon afterwards. We hear Jesus is preaching. He's going through cities and villages again. And as he's doing this, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. Because again, the messianic age has come in him. And we see here within this account that the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And the identification of these people is something that's very important because what we have here is the identification of these women indicates to us that they have an important role to play. And again, we see here that St. Luke is citing some of the sources because these people, Susanna in particular, would be individuals who the church, St. Luke is speaking to, knows. The same with St. Mary Magdalene, because she'll be the one who proclaims the resurrection first to the apostles. And we see a call out of Joanna, because she is going to have a role to play in being close to Herod and being close to uh, his, what, his family. <clears throat> so this is showing us that not only do these women have a role to play in the church, but they have a role to play particularly here in Christ's earthly ministry. We see them held up with the twelve, because the twelve are the ones that are with him towards the end of verse 1, as we see here. But the inclusion of these women and the ministry that they are participating in shows us exactly how they are carrying out a similar call to the apostles. The apostles, again, if we remember what their role is, it's to be sent out. But these women who are identified here, their role is to minister to not only Christ, but the disciples. They're giving in this diaconal way. And if we're going to understand the foundations of our church and how things played out during these first centuries, well, we need to also understand that the deacon, as a role, was a role that was carried out by both men and women. It was a role of service and still is a role of service in ministry where the role of a priest is different. The role of a priest involves the consecration of the gifts. It involves a sacrifice of the self. And we can go down the rabbit hole of how masculine and feminine work within these distinct roles, but I think it's important for us to realize here that the role 
that is being carried out by these women is a role of service. Yet all Christians are called to serve. So there's kind of a blending here, because although the role, as we see here, Mary Magdalene is to serve in this moment, well, she'll also be known as the apostle to the apostles when she's the one who's being sent out to proclaim the gospel. So although we see these roles are rather gender-specific in a sense, we see that there is a blending. There's still differences in how people are called. But what's important here is an articulation that both masculine and feminine are included within this call of ministry in Christ. Because if we're going to, again, understand the context here, well, women didn't have rights within the society at that time. They were seen almost as property. And yet, what do we see here? These women are identified without their husbands. These women are identified rather as themselves and the role that they are carrying out. And this would be a very liberal idea for that day. This would be scandalous to people. And yet, the message that St. Luke is hammering home here is that all are called to serve in this life in Christ. The way that we articulate and participate in that service is different for each of us. But what matters is, if we are human beings, we are all one in Christ. We are all called to the same ministry and to the same service. And that's why he takes this moment here to identify not only the 12 who have been with Christ now this whole time, but also these women who are performing this very distinct role of ministering to Christ and ministering to the followers of him. So moving on to verse 4. And when the great crowd came together, and the people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path, and was trodden underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew with it, and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he had said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who hear the word, hold it fast, and an honest and good heart, and bring forth fruit with patience. 
So what we see here is Jesus begins to tell a parable to the multitude that surrounded him. And this is the parable of the sower, which we spent a lot of time talking about within St. Mark's Gospel. So I'll try not to repeat myself too much here. If we jump to the explanation of the parable, starting in verse 9, what we see as the disciples ask him what the parable means is that they're given a distinct role. And that distinct role is to be able to share the words, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom with others. Yet, what we see here is that the reason they have been given this honor or this calling is because they're already invested. They're already desiring to know, love, and serve Christ. And for that reason, now they're given this added ability to discern what it is that he's saying to them through these parables. And yet, he tells them that he teaches in parables so that others may not understand them. Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand, he says. Yet, when we think about this, well, initially it might seem, okay, why is Jesus gatekeeping here? Why is Jesus closing people off from being able to receive the word of God? And if we understand the role of the apostles, well, then we understand that that's not what Jesus is doing at all. Rather, he's giving the people interpreters. He's giving the people guides so that way they can walk with them on their journey of understanding the scriptures and understanding the word of God. So that way they don't fall into the various temptations that we're about to go into. If we have a fragile faith or a surface level faith and receive the word of God and yet don't truly allow for it to dwell in us, to dwell in our heart, which, again, if we understand what the heart symbolizes biblically, well, it's the center of our being. It's the core of our being. So what Christ is saying here is that we need to allow for the word, his word, to dwell within us and come to maturity. And that takes time. As we see at the very end, it takes patience. Yet, as we continue to go on this journey, and as we allow for the word to maturate within us, well, then we allow for the works of Christ, the fruits of our labor to be manifest in the world. And yet, if we go back to verse 11, we see that the parable says this, the seed is the word of God. Okay, well, as we understand from St. John's account of the gospel, Christ is the Logos. He's that word of God who in the beginning called all into creation. So God is not only the sower who spreads his seed of his word indiscriminately, because as we see, he throws it on the path, he throws it on the rock, he throws it on the good soil, and he throws it among the thorns. He's offering this word regardless of where we're coming from. And yet, our soul, our heart, the whole of our being is the soil. And a lot of Western thinkers spent a lot of time kind of fixating on the person in this equation, fixating on the heart of the person being the foundation of this parable. But really, 
the foundation of this parable is the word that's being spread. Yes, we need to be able to till the soil of our soul, of our heart. Yes, we need to be able to prepare ourselves so that way we can receive this word joyfully. But at the end of the day, if we don't understand what this word is, well then, what is it that we are taking in? What is it that we are called to be participants in? It's for this reason that the apostles, again, are playing this distinct role of guidance, this distinct role of trying to lead us towards Christ into a deeper understanding of what the word of God means. And so we see, what are the ones that fall among the path? Well, the ones that fall among the path, the seeds, that is, are those who have heard the word of God. And then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts and they may not believe and be saved. So these are the people who hear the word of God. They take it in for a moment, but then the cares of this life, the various things that come around, remove that word from them. They're trodden underfoot by the various passers-by and everything that comes along in life, and this is why Christ describes his word as falling on the path, falling away in this way. It's very easy for the devil to come along and subtly misdirect us and lead us in a different direction. Well, then we hear about the ones that fell on the rock. Those are those that hear the word and receive it with joy. So it's the people who hear a good sermon, we'll say. And for a moment, you're very exuberant, like you're filled with joy from what you've heard. And yet, there's no substance behind it. And I see this more as a warning towards teachers than it is a warning against the people who receive that word with joy initially. Because if the individual who's given that word is not fostered, if the individual who's given that initial word is not walked with carefully, rather they're just kind of given a vapid understanding of the word, a joyous message, but doesn't have a root in it, well, what happens? Well, it withers, and it dies, it's blown away by the wind. Unfortunately, we like to pronounce the good news of the gospel without understanding the depth of soil that comes along with it. We need to understand that Christ came into the world to liberate us, but we have work to do in that equation. We need to be able to walk with people and guide them so that way, when life gets difficult, when the cares of this life come along, as we're going to see with the symbol of the thorns, well, they're not choked away. They're not blown away and driven away by the devil. Yet this takes care. This takes time. This takes fostering. And this takes all of us as one walking in the same direction of service. And yet, if those who are called to teach and this is including myself, take that responsibility lightly and proceed to just talk about all of the good that comes along with life in Christ and forget about the journey and forget about walking with people in that journey, well, then I'm responsible for leading people astray. Then I am responsible if I give the word in this joyous sense and just kind of leave it at that for what comes along next. So it's very easy for us to look at these people and say, 
oh, look, they had no depth of soil. They fell on this rock. No, they got blown away. That's their fault. And yes, all of us have a responsibility for our actions that we need to take up. But for those who are called to teach, there's a distinct responsibility that comes along with that as well. And if we look at those that fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And their fruit does not mature. So what we see here is that the seed is planted. It takes root. It continues to grow. But there are other things growing within the soil around that seed. And as the stock continues to grow up, well, what happens is the thorns continue to choke out that seed. And what happens here is with time, as that seed comes to maturity, it's cut off before it can fully maturate, before it can fully bear fruit, because there are other motivating factors lying at the heart of this person. There are other thorns that are there growing up alongside this joy, this participation within the kingdom. And ultimately, what happens is those other motivating factors choke out the very life of that joy, the light of Christ that is within each and every one of us. Now, we need to understand that how this transpires is through watering both the seed, so the word, in us, and also watering the thorns and sustaining those thorns by neglecting the reality of them existing. Because they're there. We all have various hardships. We all have various struggles. We all have things that pull us away from Christ. Yet, if we continue to foster them because they're growing up alongside this joyous gift of the word that we're given, well then when they initial they eventually choke out that gift when they they eventually choke out that word well we hold responsibility for neglecting the thorns that existed within us to begin with it might catch us off guard when that day comes and yet if we look back on what we were doing all along we may find that we were not only nurturing the word but we were also feeding these thorns. And yet, what we see is that in the end, those that fell on the good soil are those who, when hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. They till the soil of their self. They continue to nurture this word. They continue to rise up. And yet, it takes time. It takes patience, as we see at the very end. And yet, through that time, through that care, through that discernment, through that patience, what is brought forth is fruits worthy of our labors, the fruits of the Spirit. The love of Christ is then brought into the world through our actions. Yet this is only possible through our careful caring of the heart, our, our careful pruning of the various thorns and whatnot that grow up within us. And ultimately, if we strive 
to allow for the word of God to dwell in us, which is this good news of, this, of the gospel, a recognition that Christ has come to liberate us from all of the oppressions of this life, well, then we will be able to bear fruits that are worthy of that word. But it's not because we've done some action detached from it. Rather, it's because we've allowed for the word of God, who again is Christ, the Logos, to dwell within us. And as we embody him and live a life fully in him with time and fostering, the fruits of our labors will reveal him to others. So this is the point of the parable. The point is that we need to allow for the word to dwell in us. We need to be aware of all the various things that can help, that can distract us and pull us away from allowing for Christ to dwell in us. And the promise that we have here is that if we allow for Christ to truly dwell in us, if we allow for his word to take root, then it will bear fruit. And that fruit will be a labor. We are called again to serve, as we talked about at the beginning of this section, at the beginning of this chapter. But the only way that we can truly serve is by having Christ serve us and us serve him in like manner. So moving on to verse 16. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but puts it on the stand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hid that shall not be made manifest, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to light. Take heed then how you hear, for to him who has will more be given, and from him who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So we see a new parable here. But this parable truly is a continuation of the one that we just read. Because we see that nobody lights a lamp and covers it with a vessel or puts it under bed. But they put it on lampstands so those who enter may see the light. What this is speaking of, again, is if we understand... Christ, from the theology that we'll hear in St. John's Gospel, Christ is not only the word, logos, in the beginning that brought all in the creation, but he's also described as the light in the, who, in the beginning, was so potent that darkness itself could not even comprehend it. So in the same vein as our understanding that Jesus is the word of God, we know that he is also this potent light. And yet, if we're given light, well, what are we to do with it? We're not going to hide it under a bed or cover it with some type of vessel. Why? Because if the light is potent enough, well, eventually it's going to shine through. If it's a lamp and you're hiding it under a bed, well, it's going to set that bed on fire with time. So what we try to hide if we're trying to hide and stifle the word. Well, what we see is that that word is eventually going to be made manifest. That word is eventually going to reveal itself, regardless of how we try to conceal it. And we see in verse 
18, when Christ says, Take heed how you hear, for to him who has will more be given. And for him, him who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Well, what he's saying is that for those of you who have received this word, taken the care to foster it and to hear it, well, more of that joy will be given to you. You will be a participant in the kingdom. You will be a participant in this word. And yet, if we've closed ourselves off to it, well, when all's said and done, we'll be revealed to have nothing. And even what we thought we had will be taken away from us. Because we will not then enter into eternal life. Because we have not fully embodied Christ. We've not allowed for ourselves to be able to be full participants in him. And this is what he's telling us here. He's telling us that we need to take care of how we hear, of how we receive the word. So that way we can foster it rather than choking it out or rather than rejecting it. And here in verse 19, we hear, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him for the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So here we see Jesus' mother, Theotokos, and his brothers, so the other children of Joseph, came to him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. Again, we've seen this massive multitude surrounding Jesus. And so even his family by blood cannot approach him. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he takes this as a teaching moment. Because his disciples are saying, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And Jesus looking at the crowd, these people who have left everything and followed him, tells them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, this account here is different than the one we heard in the Gospel according to St. Mark. Because in the Gospel according to St. Mark, the interaction between Jesus and his family is confrontational. Yet, with St. Luke's Gospel, that confrontation between Jesus and his kinsfolk has already happened back in verse 4, back in chapter 4, rather. So what we see here is that his family is genuinely desiring to come and see him. They're not trying to shut him up. They're not trying to uh, stop the words that he's saying as they were in St. Mark's account. Because again, St. Luke has already talked about Jesus being rejected by his kinsfolk, Jesus being rejected by his countrymen. So what we see here when he says that my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, is an inclusion of them as well. And of course this would be the case, because St. Luke has just spent so much time telling us about the faith of the Theotokos and the works that she's done. So of course she's included here. So this teaching moment, when Jesus tells his disciples this, indicates to them that not only are his blood relatives his family, but all who do the works of God, who receive his word, become a part of Christ's family. And this is our understanding of being a part of the body of Christ, because we are integrated into the church 
And that church is a family. That church is a part of a composite unit. A unit ultimately centered in Christ. And so this is what he's telling them. Oftentimes, again, we can read various people who interpret this as a put-down of Jesus' family and saying, okay, well, they're not included in this equation. And that's an interpretation you can maybe take from St. Mark's account. But here in St. Luke, the articulation is very specific. It is that his mother and his brothers are standing outside desiring to see him. And yet, Jesus tells all the people here that his mother and his brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, including his mother and his brothers, including the multitude that's surrounded around him. We must take this to heart because this is including us. So if we are the truly embody Christ, if we are truly to live a life in him, then we are called to do the same. We are called to become his family by doing the will of the Father in the same way that Christ is. So moving on to verse 22, here we're going to see a narrative shift. And again, this is a narrative shift to a new section of St. Luke's Gospel where we will see explicitly Jesus' authority, his divine authority, expressed. So moving on to verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake, so that they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a storm of wind came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm, and he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they do obey him? So one day we see that Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he says to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and they set sail, and as they were sailing across the lake, Jesus falls asleep. This identification of Jesus sleeping, as I mentioned earlier, is an identification by St. Luke of Jesus' humanity. We sleep. That's something that human beings do as a basic necessity. And so we see Jesus performing the same act. Yet, symbolically, what sleeping represents is a faith in God, especially when we see the storm begin, because Jesus is where when the disciples find him? Well, he's sleeping calmly in the midst of the storm. So that's showing that Jesus has faith in God. He's putting his whole life as he's subconscious, as he's sleeping, into the Father's hands. And this is showing this ultimate faithfulness. And yet, the disciples come to Jesus and they cry, Master, Master, we are perishing. And so Jesus wakes up, and what does he do? He rebukes the raging waves, and they cease, and there's a calm. So through his word, as he wakes up, he shows that he has dominion 
over the waves. He has dominion over the elements. And he says to his disciples, where is your faith? And we're told that they were afraid, and they marveled, saying at one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? He asks his disciples, Where is your faith? Because they've seen him commit so many acts of God. He's been healing. He's been raising the dead. He's been preaching the good news to captives. And yet, they still don't fully grasp who he is. Again, as we spoke about earlier, last chapter with the centurion, we see that it's a Gentile who first identifies Jesus as having these divine characteristics. Yet, the Jewish people, even Jesus' closest followers, don't understand truly who this is. They can't fully grasp what's happening in front of them. And yet, they start to get an inclination that there's more at play here because they question who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. They're recognizing that these are divine characteristics. These are characteristics of God. And yet they can't fully wrap their heads around that being the ultimate reality. There will be a time where they do. Because after the resurrection, these same disciples, these same apostles will become the church. And they will go out spreading the gospel to all nations. But here, we see they still don't understand. Here we see that they're lacking faith. But faith is produced through wrestling with God. Through trying to understand who he is. And building a relationship with him. So even though the apostles and disciples in this moment seem to not get it, and time and time again we're going to see them continue not to understand who it is that they're traveling with, we know that through their desire to understand who it is that they're traveling with, and through their desire to understand who the Christ truly is, ultimately after he raises from the third day, he'll click. And then they will carry out their mission spread this message to all nations. So moving on to verse 26. Then they arrived at the country of the Gesserines, which is opposite Galilee. And as he stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he lived not in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beseech you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and fetters, but he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter there, these. So he gave them leave. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. 
and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So as Jesus comes to the other side of the lake, what we see here is he's met immediately by a man who has many demons. And we're given a description of this man. For a long time, he'd worn no clothes, and he lived not in a house, but among the tombs. We get a further description of him after verse 29, when we hear, For many times it seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and fetters. But he broke the bonds and was driven by demons into the wilderness. So this is a man who seems to be more beast than man. He is filled with many demons, so he had many demons, as we're told here. And for a long time, he wears no clothes. He's feral, and he's living among the tombs. And we need to understand where this is. This is in Gentile territory, as we see with the herd of pigs. So if this man is a Gentile and he's living among the tombs, well, first of all, for a Jewish person, a tomb is an unclean place to begin with. But a Gentile tomb is a place of pagan sacrifices, of various pagan rituals. So this would be extra unclean in a sense. And yet this man falls before Jesus. Something calls from within him, even though he's in this feral state and pulls him towards Christ immediately after he leaves this boat. And so Jesus asks him, what is your name? And there's no name that's actually applied. Rather, it's a number. It's an identification of how many spirits are within him. And it's roughly 6,000. That's roughly what a legion is. So this man is so overcome by demons that he can't even speak, and yet he falls down before Jesus. And we see the demons have this reaction to him. They say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beseech you, do not torment me. So this is showing us again that he's messianic king, and that the messianic age has come with the coming of Christ. Because the messianic age is torment to demons. It's showing them that their age has come to an end because here is the true Messiah. Here is the liberator of captives who has come to liberate us all from the evil forces of this world. And so Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. And we see after this identification that there are many demons within him that they beg Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss, because that is the place where the demons in final judgment will go. They will be sent into the abyss. They will be finally cast out of this world. And so they beg Jesus not to let this happen yet. They know the time has not fully come, even though the Messiah is in front of them. And so they see this herd of swine on the hillside, and they beg him, let's go into the pigs. So he gives them leave. And yet the demons don't understand that when they came into the pigs, these seemingly irrational animals, well, the torment that the pigs experience from these tormentors, these spirits, pushes them into an abyss. 
it pushes them into the sea, where not only the pigs are destroyed, but ultimately the demons are as well. Because again, if we understand what the sea represents, the sea represents this place of primordial chaos, this abyss. So as the demons go to torment another creature, well, that creature decides to retaliate. Those creatures decide to fling themselves into the sea, ultimately dooming the demons. I think all too often we get hung up on the pigs in the equation here, and we say, well, how could Jesus commit such an act of animal cruelty? Yet we need to understand symbolically what's happening here. It's not that Jesus went and cast the demons out into the pigs, that way the pigs would go kill themselves. But rather, Jesus gave the demons what they desired. And the demons, because all they can do is torment us, all they can do is torture us, push these pigs to the point where they all flung themselves into the sea. And ultimately, this became the demons' undoing. Because they ended up going to the, the abyss before their time, even though they desired mercy from God. This act was committed by them because they pushed the pigs in this direction. And the pigs became the conduit to their own destruction. And we see here in verse 34, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country, then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how he was, who, who had been possessed with demons was healed. And all the people of the surrounding country of the Gennesarenes asked him to depart from them. And they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might come with him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much good has been, how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So we see that the herdsmen see all of these events. They see the man who had caused them so much grief, all of a sudden liberated of these demons. And then they see the pigs that they're charged and taken care of throw themselves into the sea. So they run back to the city and they tell all the people about what had just happened. So those who saw this and those who were in the city come to Jesus. And when they come to him, they see that this man, who was seemingly feral, who was more beast than man as he's depicted, is seen clothed, sitting by the feet of Jesus, and in his right mind. He's finally come to himself. He's liberated of all of these demons that oppressed him. So whatever struggles he was dealing with, whatever he allowed to embody him, is no longer in control. And he shows himself sitting at the feet of Jesus in full subservience to him, in full desire to be able to live a life in him. And yet, the people are filled with fear. They're not ready to receive this great glory. They've been 
experiencing this experience of God. And that's why fear is what overcomes them. Because again, as we've mentioned before, whenever people experience the divine, well, the immediate response they have is to fear. And so they ask him, leave us. Don't be here with us. We're not ready for you. And so Jesus acquiesces. He leaves. And the man pleads with him. He begs him that he might come with him. But we see that Jesus sends him away. And we might see this as cruelty. It's, of course, why would this man who has gone through so much hardship now be turned away by the Lord? All he desires to do is come with him. But Jesus shows us here that he has a higher calling for this man than to just follow him. Rather, he is to be sent out. He is to be a missionary to his fellow Gentiles. And that's why he tells him, return to your home. Because remember, he was living among the tombs. He has rejected his home. He had rejected his city. And Jesus is telling him, reintegrate into society. And not only are you to reintegrate into society, but you are to declare how much God has done for you the God of Israel, Yahweh. And yet, we see here at the very end something very subtle that happens. The man went away, and he proclaimed throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Here we see the man is carrying the message that Jesus has given him. But he is the second person that we see to identify Jesus with God and is yet another Gentile, as we saw last chapter with a centurion. So this man is a missionary. This man, after he's been healed and experienced this radical transformation in Christ, is being sent out. And as he is sent out, he is to make disciples of the Gentiles. Because again, we remember that St. Luke is speaking to a primarily Gentile audience. So this is setting the stage for what is to come. Now moving on to verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of a synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he besought him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As he went, the people pressed around him, and the woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garments, and immediately her flow of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the multitude surrounds you and presses upon you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power had gone forth from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, he came trembling. She came trembling and fell down before him, declaring in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So we see here in verse 40 and onward that a ruler of the synagogue comes to Jesus, his name is Jairus, and he falls down before Jesus. Again, we see this motif of faith. There's 
an initial lowering of the self. We saw this with the demoniac as he fell down for the feet of Jesus. And now we see this with Jairus. Because what that symbolizes is that we're casting off our presuppositions of who Jesus is. We're taking the posture of a student and prostrating ourselves before him, showing that we are truly willing to receive what it is he's to offer us. And so Jairus is doing the same thing as he falls down and beseeches Jesus to come to his house. For he has a daughter who's 12 years old, and she is on the brink of dying. So Jesus follows him. And as they go, the people press around him. And in verse 43, we hear of another character who's introduced into the scene, a woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. Now, this indication of 12 years is a contrast to the age of the girl who is currently dying. Because what this is to show us is that this woman we see here, who is ritually impure for 12 years of her life, who seemingly is perceived as living as one dead. And why is that the case? Well, if by the Mosaic law she was ritually unclean because she had this continual menses, well, what that meant is that she could not come into contact with anyone because she would then make them ritually unclean. So she's socially isolated. She's socially cut off. And for 12 years, this is how she's lived her life, and no one can cure her. So she's living as somebody who is dead, and yet she's alive. She's dead because she's cut off from society. She's cut off from the broader social order. And this is a prefiguration, because as she is healed... What Jesus is saying is that, Jairus, your daughter as well, even though she is reposed, even though she, light, the breath has left her, shall be made well as well. So what we see is this woman who has a flow of blood comes up behind Jesus with the desire to only touch the hem of his garment. Her faith is so potent that she believes if only she can touch the hem of Jesus' garment, then she will be made whole. She will be healed. And so she risks everything. Because again, if she is ritually unclean, and she's discovered by anyone in this crowd, well, she has the threat of death. Because she's going through this crowd without announcing to the people that I am ritually unclean. If we remember the leper from a couple of chapters ago, well... What the leper had to do when he approached Jesus was announce, hey, I'm a leper, just giving everyone a warning. And it's in that same vein that this woman who is ritually unclean would have to do the same thing. And yet she's so faithful that if she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, that she'll be made whole, that she proceeds on through this crowd in the midst of this threat of death. And when she touches the fringe of Jesus' garment, the, the outer tassels, what happens? Well, she feels immediately that she has been healed. She feels immediately that this perpetual blood flow has ceased. And then Jesus says, who was it that touched me? This may seem strange. Jesus 
seemingly would know what happened, why is he questioning who was it who touched him? And Matthew, uh, Peter rather, makes the same point. He says, well, Jesus, look around you. There's this massive crowd that's thronging about you. And you're asking, who touched me? What's, what's going on here? And then Jesus says that somebody must have touched him because he perceived power had gone forth from him. So he makes an additional affirmation that, no, no, something has happened here. Why? Well, so the woman hasn't just walked away. It's her plan to be able to sneak away and glorify God for the gift that she's been given. And maybe if Jesus made that first statement of, who touched me? Well, okay, sometimes you need to hear something a second time for it to really sink in. And so he makes the second statement that somebody definitely had touched him for he felt power go forth from him. And what we see is this woman falls down again before Jesus. She takes this posture of repentance, of penitence. And in that moment, she is willing to accept whatever consequences are coming her way. Remember, she's in a crowd. She can easily get away. And in fact, she's been healed, so she's been given what she came for. And yet, when she hears Jesus cry out for her, she falls before him with fear and trembling. And yet, what does Jesus do? After she tells him what has happened to her, the great deeds of God that has been done to her, he refers to her as daughter. He refers to her in this affectionate way. He tells her not to be afraid. Her faith has made her whole. So now she can go in peace. In making an example of this woman, what we see is not only the multitude have an example of what faith looks like, but she is reintegrated into society. Because in him singling her out in front of the people, anyone who could be skeptical of what has just happened to her, that her hidden disorder has now gone away, has had it confirmed. She is confirmed to now be able to be reintegrated into society. She is no longer ritually unclean because all uncleanliness is cleansed in Christ. He has this transformative quality that we've talked about time and time again. And her example is not only for that multitude, but also for Jairus. Because as we're going to see in this final section, messengers are going to come and say, don't trouble Jesus anymore. Your daughter has died. But Jesus will tell Jairus to have faith. He's just given him an example of what that looks like in this woman who for 12 years lived as one long dead who was cut off from society and now has been reintegrated. So moving along, we will finish the chapter by going to verse 49. While he was still speaking, a man from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she shall be well. And when he came to the house, he permitted no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and bewailing her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. 
and they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise, and her spirit returned to her, and she got up at once, and he directed that someone that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So as I mentioned, someone comes from the ruler's house, and he says, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. And immediately after hearing this, Jesus answers him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. These are not empty words, because again, as we just saw through the healing of this woman with the flow of blood, Jesus has given Jairus an example of faith and what faith can produce. So Jesus then proceeds to Jairus' house, and he did not permit anyone to enter with him except for Peter, John, James, and the parents of the child. So Peter, James, and John, as we've spoken about before, have this distinct honor. They're in the inner circle of the inner circle, if you will. They are the ones who will see the transfigured Christ coming, I believe, in the next chapter. And so they're given this distinct honor. They're given this distinct call. And yet even they, as we mentioned earlier, will not fully comprehend who Jesus is. And so they enter the house, and there are many who are bewailing her death, and they're weeping and they're mourning. And Jesus tells the people, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And we see their sadness and their weeping transform into ridicule as they laugh at him because they know that she's dead. Yet Jesus also knows that all things are possible through him because he is the son of God. He's both God and man. And we see this manifest here in verse 54 when he takes the girl by the hand and with his word he says to her, Child, arise. And we see in verse 55 that she is truly alive because her spirit returns to her. She's not some apparition as we see with Jesus telling the family to give her something to eat because spirits do not eat. And she's not this new creation that has been brought. Rather, she is the same 12-year-old girl who has passed away and yet now has been returned to life. Jesus has reached down into Hades, and he has pulled her up in the same way that he will do the same through his resurrection with all of us. And it's for this reason that in verse 56, we close out the chapter with Jesus telling her parents, who are amazed, and the apostles, who have seen what has happened, not to tell anyone. And the reason for this is because the time has not yet come. Christ has not offered his life for the life of the world. That will come shortly. But from here, what we see is that through Jesus' divine authority, through his power, he's revealing himself to be God. And he's revealing himself to make manifest this authority in the world, this liberation of all of us from all that assails us. We saw at the beginning of the section 
that Jesus had authority over the elements, so he had authority over the weather. That's, again, a God characteristic. We saw that he has authority over unclean spirits when he liberated the demoniac. That's another characteristic of God, because God is the Lord of spirits. We see that he has authority over infirmity when he cures the woman of her hemorrhage. And finally, we see here that he has authority even over death itself. This is a continual revelation to those who are following him of who he is. Because he has come to liberate us. He has come to free us from all that oppresses us. But the only way that we can truly become participants in that liberation is by allowing for his word to dwell in us, for allowing his word to maturate within us, so that way we may bring forth the fruits of the Spirit, so that way we may share his light with the world, so we may become participants in his radically self-sacrificial love, embodying that characteristic in our own life. It's only through putting on Christ in these various ways that we can truly live a life in him. And this is the call of all Christians, because ultimately, where this leads us is liberation. Liberation from all that oppresses us. Because as we've been proclaiming now that we're in the resurrectional season, Christ has trampled down death by death itself. And to those in the tomb, he's granting life. So if he has destroyed death by entering into it, well then, when all is said and done, we are offered eternal life in him. This is what we are called to be participants in. Yet the only way that we can fully participate in that eternal life is by living a life in him in the here and now, by striving to know, love, and serve him and build this relationship with Christ in our life. Yet that takes hard work. That takes discipline. That takes a constant pruning of the garden of our heart. So that way we can be ever vigilant of the various thorns and distractions that can pull us away from being able to live that life in him. But what we are promised as we see these various healings and as we see all that Christ is offering us here in the scriptures is that if we run this race, if we do these works, and if we continue to carry them joyfully throughout our life, well then we'll not only become participants in the kingdom that is to come when we repose, but like the saints, we will become participants in that life in the here and now. We constantly get glimpses of heaven, because heaven is ultimately this life in Christ. We constantly get these glimpses so that way we are motivated to move forward with joy and with gladness. And the goal is to be able to become continual participants in that kingdom, whether that's in this life or ultimately if it's in the life to come. So the bar is set high for us. And yet Christ descends to our level. So that way he can elevate us to a level place and then set the bar for us again. So that way we have something that we can strive to. So when we are lowly, he descends into the pit to pull us up. 
And then he gives us the freedom to be able to willingly participate in the gifts he's offering us, to set the bar higher and strive towards the kingdom ultimately. He's come to liberate us, for we are captives. But he has not come to oppress us in the stead of the demons. Rather, he has come to offer us the opportunity of eternal life in him. And as we've mentioned, to be able to become full participants in this life, well then, we need to put on Christ. We need to discipline ourselves to embody his love and to share that love, that light, with the world. That's the only way that we can truly live a life in Christ. It's the only way that we can truly foster the garden and the soil of our heart so that way he can dwell in us. It's by participating in the fruits of the Spirit, by embodying his love and sharing that love with others. So that way we can all proclaim, in the words of St. Paul from the bottom of our hearts, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That is, for me to have true life is to die to the things that hold me back from that life in Christ. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. Christ is risen. Until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, Links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m., and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.